We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head over to edge.org.au for more information. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by my guest Danielle Udi from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies. But before we begin... I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. We are recording here on Luchuita, and I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you are listening in from. On behalf of everyone here and at home, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So last week, we heard from Megan Grant, one of two winners of the University of Tasmania's College of Sciences and Engineering Current HDR Candidate Award in 2022. Try saying that five times fast. But this week, we're joined by the second winner, Danielle. Now, Danielle has recently concluded her PhD here at the Institute for Marine Antarctic Studies, which is a faculty at the University of Tasmania. And her work focused on two things that you might not see how they're related to one another, Antarctic ice cores and Australian rainfall. But before we dive into her work and hear all about it, we're actually going to be taking a different track and be looking into something a bit different. When we interview our PhD candidates here at Twix, we don't often ask them about. In fact, it's not something in society that we often like to talk about openly, and that is our pay rates. So before we go any further, I want to preface our chat today with the fact that my mum is going to be horrified when she hears it. I'm going to be talking about my pay rate from my current employer. But mum, if you're listening, don't worry, I cannot be fired for this. I'm like 98% sure of that at least. So thank you so much, Danielle, for taking the jump here and talking about this with me. I am so excited to talk about it because you have been hugely influential in this field and in helping the PhD students at UTAS with their pay. So I've teased the listener with what we're going to be talking about and the fact that there's an issue with the pay rate. But can you tell us what actually is the problem? Thanks for having me on, Ollie. It's really exciting to be here. And yeah, I guess so our pay rate as a PhD, we're paid a stipend that is meant to be kind of a living allowance. And the issue that we're having a lot with this inflation is that we are now a roughly 6% below poverty line. So the base um, RTP, which is a stipend that all PhDs uh, must be paid, is currently 28854 Australian dollars per year and it is meant to rise with the CPI so with kind of taking into account inflation but it's always a bit delayed so I guess for these past few years when we haven't had much inflation it was roughly keeping up with the cost of living with only rising like you know a few percentage every year but without with the massive amount of inflation this year kind of forecasted to get to eight percent by December the lag in this rate change is um, really influencing all PhDs at the moment who are only getting the base stipend and even if you're getting base stipend and and a top up from the university it's still very much below the cost of living or like a living allowance. Yep hearing that it's six percent below the poverty line is pretty horrendous because I mean obviously I know that's what I live on as well and I 
find it hard when you go do the grocery shop and it's just so much of your weekly wage that you spend on it. But actually hearing it and hearing the numbers is huge. So when you say a base stipend, what does that actually mean? Do universities have to pay you that rate or they can pay you more? It's the base rate that has to be paid to PhDs. So it's set by the Australian government, but there's a range. So the stipend rate could go from has to go from that around that bit over 28,000 per year, but it can go up to 45,000 wow. per year and it's all tax free. So I guess when you're comparing it with the minimum wage, you have to take into account that minimum wage around 40,000 in Australia, you pay tax on that. Um, so that's, you know, would make it about a 36,000 per year um, salary if you if we're minimum wage. And um, I guess while we are, it, we need to recognise that you know, PhD is a degree, we are like training, but we're also contributing a lot to universities, um, PhDs, um, PhD candidates contribute um, at least over 60% of the output of Australian universities. Wow, I did not know that it was 60% of the output. That is a, a well, lot. Well, 60%, so 60% of research time output. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so a lot of the large grants that universities are awarded to deliver research across Australia, the bulk amount of that work is done by PhDs. So I think while we need to recognise that we are um, within the Australian system, we are considered students and we are getting a degree out of it. In other countries like Europe, um, all PhDs are considered staff members Mm -hmm. and are paid more of a staff salary rather than a student salary. Yeah, I had a look at some of the numbers before our chat and I think the Germany wage is seems to be doing um, particularly well in treating their PhD candidates as staff. But I didn't actually realise that the range set by the... It's the federal government, right, that sets that range. Yeah, I didn't realise that the range actually went as high as 45. I sort of thought it was capped even lower. Are there any universities in Australia that are doing better on the scale, that are approaching that 45? So I'm not sure of any universities that are that pay the full 45, there might be a few candidates that get that 45. But there are a few universities who have come out within the last few months to kind of address the um, inflation issue that have raised that stipend for ongoing. So um, the Australian National University in Canberra has announced recently that they would raise the stipend to 34000 per year, uh, which becomes like around 6.5% above the poverty loan. Mm. So that's nice and helpful for them. And that started, I think, from early October. So that's already been paid to mm. ANU candidates. Um, UWA in Perth has just announced that they will raise their rate to 35000 uh, per year um, from the start of next year. Mm. And I think they were already paying their candidates 30000 per year. So they were, had already chosen to pay slightly more. Yeah, uh, UTAS... This year, after Lisa and I chatted to them quite a bit, we they did give all of us a one thousand dollar one off payment, which um, take took our I guess our stipend for this year to be just above twenty nine thousand, which is what the twenty twenty three rate will be, but still quite a bit below the poverty line, and it would be nice to candidates currently um, not one anymore mm. but for candidates ongoing to know that you know maybe from January that it could be starting to be increased and I think it would be nice for all Australian universities mm. to have that rate increased and it also needs to be a federal government push as well that if federal government could change that base rate and then all universities would have to 
follow. Yeah, sure. And that's why having these public chats is very useful to bring it into the public eye. So how did you and your friend Lisa get involved in this? We, we were student reps. Uh, Lisa was the ResCom student rep of at IMAS and I was one of the Oceans and Cryosphere student reps. And with the other student reps across the institute, we ran a survey last year that was literally most of the responses back was just financial stress, financial pressure. And that was before the inflation of this year that's hit. So that was mostly kind of COVID-related pressures of like losing marking, losing tutorials. So losing all the kind of extracurricular ways that PhDs often use to bump up that stipend. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just so obvious to us that the financial stress across the PhD cohort was leading to so many other issues and whether if your PhD if you were still like completely fine with your PhD just the stresses of everything else was making just the PhD experience in general just really difficult both mentally and physically so the mental stress was leading to physical um, impacts. Yeah definitely a PhD is already a tumultuous and difficult period to get through that removing a financial burden on top of that would alleviate a lot of stresses for candidates. Yeah, and we were having uh, comments come through that were quite concerning to read as student reps and I guess we weren't... It was difficult to know how to approach them because it was all anonymous, um, but there was that like kind of duty of care that after you've asked those questions, you're like, how how are we meant to help? when like, We're also in the same situation. So it was just, yeah, it was quite alarming and difficult to process as a student rep and I guess we just started to look into the numbers and realised that we were a fair way below the minimum wage and then we were a fair way below the poverty line and uh, we started putting in our like, emails of like how far below poverty line and, and minimum wage we were and um, worked out that we pretty much should not work Fridays. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that actually brings me on to the other point in that when, at least when I started here at UTAS, I sort of signed a contract that I would be working 38 hours a week. Um, And I've sort of been encouraged to not use or to not let other work streams or avenues of work blend into my day to day. But it's very frustrating to need extra finances and then be told that I shouldn't be doing anything that distracts me from my PhD, even in my evenings and weekends. And as an international student as well, there's extra restrictions on the amount of hours I can work outside of my outside of my PhD candidature and the the there are limits to the amount of times I can pause to find other income to boost up my finances. With the survey that you sent out and the feedback you heard from candidates, was there a big difference between how the situation is affecting domestic and international students? So I think the, I guess domestic students are able to pause uh, their candidature a bit easier. Um, I think both international and domestic are able to pause for medical reasons. And and you, well, my experience is that you get uh, like paid for three months of medical leave. Is that the same of international? Yep, I've used up all three months of that. I yep. used up my three months within my second year and then I probably, over my entire PhD, had over a year of medical leave. Oh, no. Oh. Uh, that's a different topic. Yeah, <laughs> an interview for another day. <laughs> um, but I guess I think domestic and international, I'd have to d- double-check this though, but is you're limited to eight hours. You can work up to eight hours 
um, between Monday and Friday, between like 9am and 5pm. So within your scholarship agreement, you're allowed to work one day a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and but anything extra on, on that is not really allowed. I guess you could discuss it with your supervisor, but obviously if your progress in your PhD is starting to be impacted, then that's the overall thing that you need to be doing, but it's difficult when there's financial pressure at yeah, when there's financial pressure, it's difficult to continue progressing your PhD but also have enough to live on. Yep, definitely, for sure. So you mentioned top-ups, but that is a bit of a vague area that I don't know much about or haven't really had much experience in. Could you expand on what that involves? Yeah, so top-ups, a lot of it so that we have the base stipend that is set by the Australian government and that's the rate that like, all universities must at least pay that amount. And then often if your research is part of like a, a larger research initiative, um, they often have some money available to kind of top up the scholarship to be a little bit more every year. Um, it's, I think at the moment it's kind of, it's actually been used as a band-aid solution because the base stipend is so low, top-ups are pretty much used to get it too closer to a minimum wage or above the poverty line. And so, you know, they can range from, you know, a thousand, two thousand a year, up to maybe six thousand a year. If you're really lucky, ten thousand a year extra on top of the base stipend. But what we found also through the survey is that it's really unevenly spread throughout um, IMAS, and then also talking with other UTAS um, students, it's also really unfairly spread throughout univers- the university in general. So across the university in general, most of the top ups are paid out of IMAS. And then within IMAS itself, which has three different disciplines, it's mostly paid within Oceans and Cryosphere, which is the centre that has a lot of like the really big research projects, like the the big Antarctic research projects, um, the big climate research projects. So, yeah, I guess that was another really confronting and also um, really unfair finding that there's just like, you know, we're all PhDs, but we're also all getting paid and mm. given different um, different things to do. Yeah, but dif- different um, for the, for similar work where there's there's different um, different avenues of funding. Mm-hmm. Well, the top ups are they advertised well, or are they sort of a if you know someone who's had one, then it's easier to find out about them. Uh, my experience is that they're mostly within these big kind of center of excellences, or if you have like a CSIRO. Um, supervisor then you can access the different top-ups and sometimes the Bureau of Meteorology offers top-ups but once again they're all kind of really biased towards the physical and the climate sciences and and less so I'm I'm aware of less into the other sciences. Yeah us and our penguins don't (laughs) have a bit less of that Um, but I know thinking of the paid sick leave that you mentioned earlier I only knew about that because of a friend had actually had it and she told me all about it and it really helped me and now I try and tell as many people as I can no no you can get paid sick leave and that is physical and mental leave as well so that was my experience too I only found out about it because I have a really supportive supervisor and a really supportive um, graduate research officer Mm. and also a friend mentioned it to me and then since then I have been advocating it and even added it as a question on the survey last year Mm. of are you aware of sick leave and then in the like a blurb underneath pretty much explained what sick leave we could take. Yeah, thank you for doing that. We need to get the word out. And before we move to our break and track down a little bit more in a sciencey route, 
Is there anything else about the pay rate, about the scholarship, or about what listeners could do to sort of help advocate for it that you would like to leave them with? I think advocate... Um, it is also a federal government issue. Um, if uh, Universities are quite hamstrung, I guess. Like their funding sources have been severely restricted over the last few years. Um, but so I think it's both both push locally at your university, but also push federally. Right? Talk to federal ministers, talk to your federal local members. Um, overall, the science of Australia is needs to be changed and is roughly is going through a review with the new federal government but overall there needs to be more of a push for science yeah or research in general (laughs) yeah there definitely does so stick with us listeners for part two as we look into danielle's work and the fantastic contributions she's made to her field even though she wasn't paid minimum wage for it You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Danielle Udy from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. We've discussed the pay rates that PhD candidates live on when they study, but now we're going to hear more about the actual PhD that she got up to. So, Danielle, your PhD involves the rain in Australia and the ice in Antarctica. How on earth are those two things involved with one another? It's a good question and my PhD actually answered it which is pretty cool <laughs> oh wow awesome what well, a started the answer i guess oh yeah, yeah. great yeah so um i guess a bit of a backstory my supervisor tessa vance found um, in around like 2012 2013 that um the how, how salty the the snowfall is in east antarctica kind of directly south of perth um which is then preserved in the ice core is related to how the rainfall in Australia. So um, summer periods with really like high salt, but it's still very low salt. It's just you know slightly saltier. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't actually taste it if you tasted the, <laughs> the ice. But um, it's so slightly higher salt in the in the lab coming through the ice core is um, related to increased rainfall along the eastern Australian coastline. So you know then increased the risk of flooding, like what we've been seeing this last year. And then periods of lower salt concentration was related to drought conditions and quite long drought conditions and then that increasing the risk of bushfires across eastern Australia like we saw in 2019. So um, her, her research had found this relationship between the areas and um, and the ice core extends back, or was, did extend back a thousand years and now we, it, it, we extended it back 2,000 years where we can see nearly every summer within that 2,000-year period, the whole ice core from Law Dome actually extends back like tens of thousands of years. But um, my research was focusing on the last 1,000 to 2,000-year record and actually most of my PhD was focusing on like our last 40 years where we have really good data and we can actually figure out what's happening between the ice core site and Australia. What were you doing exactly with those 40 years of data? So over the last 40 years, we've had a lot of satellites go up and so we can visualise and see a lot more more data. Like So we have rainfall data from stations over the last, say, 100 years in Australia. Um, we have station data in Antarctica from about the mid-1950s and then we have satellites that come on board around the 1979. And from 
But once we have the satellites involved, we get a lot of spatial data. So we can see like the massive cloud formations that form in the Southern Ocean and you get um, different you get like winds and you get a lot of extra meteorological data to to work with. So you can start to look at patterns, weather patterns that form between the two continents and that's what I focused on was looking to see whether this relationship between how salty the snowfall was in Antarctica or East Antarctica to rainfall in Australia was related to an actual kind of weather system set up rather than just being a random like teleconnection between two areas. And what were your main results that came out of it? So we we found that it was a like a, a weather scale set up. So I don't know how many of your viewers like, you know, watch like weather. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a I probably need to self identify as a weather nerd. <laughs> um, but I don't guess, I guess like um, sometimes on the news you'll have like synoptic weather chart as like as part of your weather, as part of the weather and you'll have you'll see big things like a high pressure system and a low pressure system. And um, and then like the winds and stuff around that, so it was at that scale. So we we have like this setup between East Antarctica and Australia, where we kind of have these high low highs, and how they orientate themselves actually directly feeds into. So we're having heaps of wind across the Southern Ocean, picking up sea salt from the ocean, um, and depositing that sea salt into the or picking up that sea salt from the ocean. It goes into the atmosphere and then transports itself becomes part of a cloud and then the snow snows out at the ice core site so that's the mechanism for increased wind speed to increase salt but at the same time we have um, weather systems that are directing moisture into eastern Australia and also allowing heaps of that moisture to be uplifted really fast which is needed for widespread rainfall across eastern Australia. And how do these results affect how we here in Australia view the weather? Will they have tangible outcomes in just knowing that the salt levels in Antarctica or eastern Antarctica will affect it here will that be able to be used in meteorological <laughs> studies going forward so it's more about putting con- putting our recent observations into context and so being able to put like you know these recent how how rare are these recent floods um, and being able to dis- help disentangle the climate variability signal that we have in Australia, like that's driven by the, the Pacific, the Southern Ocean, and the Indian Ocean, um, to also to disentangle that from what is the anthropogenic climate change signal mm-hmm. in both like um, rainfall and, and floods to um, drought and bushfires mm-hmm. signals. So um, the research that Tessa had done with also one of my other co-supervisors, Anthony Kayam, prior to me starting, was already using the um, like one thousand year record to put into context drought risk and kind of I actually got into my PhD because I was working as a hydrologist and got given the ice core data to use well, that was being used in stochastic modelling of whether or not a desalination plant should be invested in because you know it was the millennium drought that happened in Australia which was you know like a 10-year drought where we I was living in Brisbane at the time we nearly ran out of water in Brisbane we probably about six to eight months out of away from running out of water, Melbourne nearly ran out of water, and you know I was remember showering with like buckets all around me, and then like you know I had like your one plant that you wanted to keep alive. Um, so from that it was like, oh, is this the worst drought? Because it was worse, uh, it was bad. <laughs> it was worse than the previous worst drought. 
and is like, is this an anthropogenic climate change signal or is this could this just naturally happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and what the ice core really gives us good perspective of is that droughts, really long droughts, are, um, are actually they're, they're rare, but they're not unprecedented in Australia's history over the last one thousand years, and they actually it actually indicates there's a period of around the 11th and 12th century that has a, th- a potentially a 39-year drought, um, which, you know, would just... No Australian city would be able to survive a 39-year drought um, with current infrastructure. And and that record, actually, it aligns really well with those lower-resolution records, so lake sediments that also suggest really dry conditions and speleotherms that also suggest really dry. So that gives us confidence that this remote um, remote ice core is picking up Australian climate and that these really dry periods are something that we should plan for even without considering the impact that anthropogenic climate change will have. Thanks for explaining that. Two very different things that I would never have thought could go hand in hand and how awesome that your supervisor sort of noticed it and then it could lead to future work as well. Now, just to finish up, congratulations on the award that you just won. Thank you. Having gone through a PhD, all the struggles, all the hard work, all the hours that you put in at your laptop, frustrated when it didn't work or just everything that you went through, how does it feel to be given an award for your efforts? It's a really nice um, acknowledgement of, I guess, the the science output, but also the kind of the extracurricular, um, oh, it's not really extracurricular, but the the, the stuff outside of the just the PhD that um, I really enjoyed doing as well, but it's really nice to be acknowledged for, um, yeah, running like working as a student rep and running um, writing workshops for fellow HDRs and I guess and also <laughs> putting the word out for <laughs> the stipend. Although I'm not sure if that led to the award. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, on behalf of the other PhD candidates here at IMAS and at UTAS. Thank you very much to you and Lisa for all of your work. We really appreciate it. We need people like you to bring about change and hopefully for the PhD candidates in the future, the ball that you've started rolling can get bigger and bigger for better days ahead. I hope so too. So thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show and that it got you thinking about something that you may not have ever thought about before. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie and I'd like to thank my guest Danielle one last time for talking about her research as well as opening up about a difficult topic that affects a lot of our colleagues and friends here. So from us, I hope you all have an absolutely wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. Tune in to Edge Radio on 5pm on Sundays to hear That's What I Call Science, bringing you big ideas from the small island.